You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is an attorney who represents startups, nonprofits, arts organizations, and people who work in the creative industries. As an arts entrepreneur, Brian is the founder and CEO of Performing Arts Live, a Pennsylvania nonprofit corporation dedicated to creating and supporting live performance opportunities for jazz and electronic artists. Its flagship program is the Allentown Jazz Fest. Brian is a TEDx speaker, a Grammy voter, and jazz musician. Creative Confidential begins now. Today we have a unique story, at least with respect to some of the other guests that we've we've had on from the nonprofit world. Uh, Today we're very lucky to be joined by songwriter and rapper Whitney Payton. Whitney, thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Via the uh, magic of, of Skype. And thank God for Skype, because otherwise it would be impossible to get everybody in the same room. Yeah, um, the internet's kind of awesome. It, it is, has pros and cons, but <laughs> mostly awesome. It, it definitely does. Um, now, for those of you who do not know Whitney's work, um, you know, for the old people like me that are over 40, uh, but uh, Whitney is a self-made performer. I'm done with it. I'll run scissors and hand tripping. What I mean by that is she has made her own way and is is doing creative work on her own terms, which... I think is coming to become the definition of success on this show anyway. And, um, you know, Whitney, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're up to right now. I know you have a new album coming out, I believe January five. Yep. Right. Breaking the frame is the, is the title. Yeah. It's called break the frame. It's uh the pre-orders open now. And uh, so I have that coming out in the new year. I also have new touring dates um, announced. And this is just like a continuous thing. I mean, the trick is really to stay busy. So I always have something new happening. <laughs> it's got to be. Well, it, it, it's not an easy thing to keep going because, you know, back in the back in the old days, even, you know, even as recently as the 90s, I would say, you know, you had a cycle. You'd you'd record an album, you'd release it, you'd go tour in support of the record then the next year you do the same thing over again with, but that doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, with the way album sales have gone in terms of, you know, physical, uh, retail outlets folding, you know, left and right, um, and everything being available digitally, you know, it, uh, you know, I follow you on Instagram and, and Twitter and you're, you're one of the best at, managing that constant engagement with your with your fans um i mean that's the trick i'm I'm, thank you first of all for following me on all that stuff but uh i mean that's the thing because now now with the internet uh i think more than ever artists are more approachable like you couldn't talk to an artist before back in the day maybe the 90s everything it was very uh, they were more mysterious. You couldn't just tweet at them. You couldn't just right, hit them up right. on Instagram and maybe get a reply, even from some of the biggest artists. Um, and now that's a thing. So it's it's really important to you know engage with your fans. And it and it seems to me that it you're almost constantly on the road. How many how many shows a year do you? How many performances a year do you do? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, 
I, I haven't really kept track. I would say uh, well over 100 shows a year, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, so it's just been the last couple of years that I've really done that, though. I mean, I started out like any other local artist. I was doing shows locally. I was doing spot dates all across the nation. So I would just mm-hmm. fly out somewhere and do a date and come back. Um, and then it finally turned into routed touring. And that was just a couple of years ago. So um, but since that happened, I've literally not stopped doing it um, because that's really really the way to get your name out. I mean, honestly, you just said how uh, sales for uh, recordings have dropped, but you can't really bootleg a show. <laughs> you still have to go to a show. So, right. um, you know, that's that's helped tremendously. Well, and, and when you refer back to when you were getting your start, you, you know, generally you're from, you know, the Philadelphia suburbs, as I recall, right? Yep. And so when... You know, give us a, a general year. Like, when did you first start performing live? Um. Well, I started recording and everything when I was probably 15 or 16. So when I actually was able to perform live when I was allowed in the clubs is probably when I was about 18 years old, you know? So, I mean, it's been some time now. I'm, I'm still young. I'm still in my twenties. Uh, but I started pretty young in my teens and like knew what I wanted to do from such a young age. So it's really funny when I'm talking to different veterans and they're like, yeah, I have like 15 years in this business, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, yeah, me too. Even though, (laughs) you know, I'm like 20, 15, 20 years younger than them and they're telling me like you know I have so many years on you and I'm thinking well actually (laughs) I I recorded my song crazy uh, in the straight jacket I don't know if you guys saw that music video in the straight jacket I recorded that song when I was 16 I wrote and recorded it so I mean so I've been doing this for quite some time I was involved also in the Lehigh Valley uh, Music Awards I know you guys uh, you know interview artists from the Lehigh Valley all the time Uh, so even though starting in the Philly area I started playing you know Philadelphia uh World Cafe Live. I mm-hmm. was playing places in the Lehigh Valley, Crock Rock, when that was a thing. Yep. Um, so it was like 2008, 2009. I want to say that I really started uh, performing in, in clubs and venues and stuff. And then it just started uh, catapulting from there because I didn't stop. <laughs> and and at that point, you were you were booking yourself. You were you were handling that all. You know, you were one woman, one woman army at that point, right? Yeah, and I mean, up until just recently, I was too. I mean, I just just now signed to an agency, uh, so now I have a booking agent. But that's as of like a couple months ago. Uh, so up until then, even with all my touring, I was still booking myself. Um, See, you know, that's surpri- <laughs> that really surprises me because you project. <laughs> you know, with. Um, you know, with the way that, you know, you have this, you know, your social media campaigns and, and you know, everybody's on Team Underdog and, and all the hashtags that that you have sort of appropriated for yourself, um, it seem it, it surprises me that there's not more than, you know, there are not more people helping out. And that's a great testament to you in terms of how much energy you've got to put in to something like this to make it work. 
Yeah, I mean, I've I've started to build a team around me. I do have a producer that works with me. I have a personal assistant too now that helps me respond to emails and everything. Um, and I just signed with an agency. So there was somewhat of a team that I started building, but it was still just me and my friends doing everything. It wasn't like a big industry machine of, right. you know, professionals that have been doing this for 30 years. It was just like me and some of my friends who wanted to do it. And then we just wore all the hats. So there was like three of us doing the job of like 50 people, you know what I mean? So we do everything and I do everything down to my graphics. Like when you see my flyers and stuff, I did that too. So, um, and that's something I didn't know how to do. I didn't know how to work Photoshop or anything. When I started, I just was like, you know what? I can't afford to pay for a flyer. This was, you know, back when I started. So I was like, I have to make my own flyers because I can't afford it. So I started watching tutorials and learning how to make flyers in Photoshop. I've become pretty good at it. So, you know, when you're an artist, you know what your branding is you know what you're going for. So right. having someone else do it is not always the answer. Everyone thinks, oh, I need someone to do this for me. Uh, she is farther than me because she has someone doing this for it. That's, that's not the case. Like you know what you want out of something. So sometimes the job is best left up to you. And that's really why I stayed in control of my booking and everything for so long. It's not because I didn't have the option to have someone else take it over or that I didn't have people interested in taking it over. I certainly did. Um, but I knew what I wanted. I knew what my market was uh, better than anyone else. So that's why I just kept control of it until the last possible second when it's just absolutely too much for me to handle. Well, right. And you, and you reach a point where, you know, one person just can't physically do all the stuff at a high level that, that needs to happen. Um, you know, and, and a couple of things you said really um, struck me that, if you were running a startup, like let's say you were, you know, a software engineer or, you know, or something, something in another industry, mm-hmm. you know, it, you'd be hard pressed to think of someone who lives and breathes what they do as much as you do. And, and you know, that's sort of a, the, a thread that runs through, you know, all the performers that we have on, whether they're visual artists, you know, painters or sculptors or photographers, you know, or, or musicians. Um, and that, that comes through, you know, loud and clear that when you say no one knows your audience the way you do, uh, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And we've, you know, we've heard that sentiment in a couple of different uh, variations, but th- it's funny you say that. Yeah, I mean, when someone else, when you're bringing anyone onto your team as a as an artist, you're trusting them with part of your image because you're trusting them to uh, correspond with people and they're representing you every time they are, you know. So uh, depending on how they treat people or what they say, uh, you're, you're really trusting them with a lot of your reputation every time. So, I mean, that's just something I would tell young artists. Everyone thinks, well, having a manager is having be- is better than having no manager, but that's just not true. If, if you have a manager or someone on your team that just doesn't represent you well it's actually way more damaging than having nobody absolutely Uh, yeah that's what they should know and that's what a lot of people don't don't get that that's a great point and and you know you you often hear people say well you got to delegate you have to you know you have to delegate that out so that you can focus on you know whatever the task is um that not always the case though in the arts you know if if you know you're in a way, you are the product. Your your songs, your photographs, your image. I mean, all of that is one inseparable. You know, they're they're all inseparable from one another. So, 
Um, it's interesting that you, you know, a good pointer for you uh, kids at home that are listening to this. Uh, watch, you know, watch what managers you uh, you, you align yourselves with. Um, you know, and one thing from my own, you know, just in representing entertainers um, is that, you know, written agreements can, you know, generally my, my view on, on getting everything in writing is that, you know, a, a writing protects everybody. So whether it's a manager or a performance agreement with, you know, World Cafe Live or whatever venue uh, you're performing at, um, getting all the details in writing is, is key. Um, and sometimes people, the reason I say all this is that sometimes you'll, people will come to me with agreements they have signed for agents or, you know, whether, whether it's a a modeling agency or, or a talent management and, you know, the agreement is for a term of three years and they can't get out of it. Um, so your, your caution with, with that issue is really, uh, really, really brilliant. Um, and, uh, you know, so you're, are you going back out on the road anytime? I know you're kind of like perpetually on tour, but (laughs) what do you have coming up in the, in the spring of 16? Well, yeah, I mean, during the holidays, everything kind of comes to a halt because not as many people are going to concerts over, you know, the the Christmas time. So I actually I'm home through December. But then in January, I have uh, a short run where I go out uh, kind of all over the East Coast and the Midwest. I'm performing. I have several headlining dates and then I have a couple dates with Cottonmouth Kings. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. They're pretty popular uh, rap group. And then in the spring, I do have other shows, but they are just simply not announced yet as we get Mm -hmm. everything kind of set in stone. Uh, But I will be uh, touring consistently throughout um, 2016. And I really want to go overseas. That's honestly my next step. I've, right. I've toured nationally a couple times now. Um, I haven't headlined every state yet, but I've toured uh, several times. I My next step is to get overseas. I've also toured Canada already as well. So Well, and, and just so people have a little bit of context, you know, one of the things that I find, um, you know, most fascinating about watching your career is that, A, you've done it almost single-handedly, at just as you've you know described mm-hmm. um, for an indie band or an indie artist, you know, even if you're in a big city, you know, let's say you're in New York um, to amass, you know, a thousand followers on Facebook is not as easy as it sounds. If you're doing it organically through, you know, you know, out playing gigs and, and, you know, having one-on-one contact with people, you know, there, there are ways on Facebook you can buy, you know, um, you know, you can sort of purchase likes and who knows if some of these profiles are real or not. And there's a whole kind of body of articles about about that. Uh, that's not the way you did it. You were very grassroots, very much, you know, pounding the pavement and, you know, out there performing constantly. Uh, you've amassed a, a Facebook audience of 77,000 people, which is an enormous number, um, or at least it is to me. Um, and you know, tell us a little bit about how much social media impacts your, you know, your strategy or your, you know, your outreach with your fans. I mean, I have a pretty wide demographic of fans and most of them, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say most of them. I, I It's pretty wide. It, it ranges probably from, I don't know, from 
14 to there's people well into their their 50s at my shows too like i have i have one fan that just has his arm covered in uh, my logos and stuff and tattoos and <laughs> and it's, it's pretty crazy and yeah. he's got to be in his 50s uh but it's you know it's the the kids really care about social media like the kids are really all over instagram they're mm -hmm. all over snapchat they're all over twitter um a lot of times i'm tagged in things before i even get off the stage because these yeah, kids are just filming the whole time you know so it's uh, they're the, just really about it. it you know and it makes me think of uh you know what frank zappa used to call like real-time nostalgia where people are are reminiscing about stuff as almost as it's happening like you know where you upload pictures you know when you're at a concert um and before it even is over you know people have have, have started sharing it um do you have you investigated or do you plan on doing any um you know like video streaming is you know with with periscope and uh other apps like uh you know you now you know, that kind of stuff. Um, have you, are you planning to do any of that or? I have used Periscope quite a few times. Okay. Uh, on my last tour, I had someone Periscoping side stage every single show actually. So you could watch uh, my shows as they're happening in different cities <laughs> and, and you could comment and all that stuff. So I've used Periscope quite a few times. Uh, I mainly use it when I'm on the road. I should probably use it uh, more often. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a crazy thing to see that you could be streaming right from your phone, have people chatting to you as you're doing it. Um, it's really cool. I really like it. Well, and I um, just had become aware of, of you now. I was reading an article. I don't know if it was uh, in, in Business Insider or, or one of the websites. And, you know, you've got people that are teenagers mm -hmm. um streaming from their homes literally you know and it's not about nothing i mean there's some point of view there's some subject matter there's some angle that they have that resonates with other people but it's you know it seems to me that that's sort of an untapped or an underutilized um tool for performers these days just as an observer from the outside that with your name recognition, you know, you could attract, you know, you could have tens of thousands of people watching, you know, whatever it is that you choose to share, whether it's demos or, um, you know, just freestyle stuff or just speaking directly to people without any kind of filter, or, you know, m media or, or anything else. So. Um, I know it's a crazy thing. It's a, I think a lot of artists have gotten themselves in trouble because of it, but it's definitely, yeah, well, yeah. you know, really cool. Definitely. Um, you don't want to get drunk and go on Periscope. No, though. no, no. That's probably not a good yeah. idea. <laughs> well, it used to, well, and it just used to be that like drunk dialing was the worst thing that could happen, <laughs> you know, where you'd offend one person, uh, let now alone. you can offend thousands at yeah. once. It's perfect. It's much more efficient that way. <laughs> um, so, uh, Tell us a little bit about, you know, let's go back a, a little, a little, a, a little bit. And um, when you said earlier in, in our conversation, you knew what you wanted to do from a very early age. Mm -hmm. And, you know, tell us a little bit about how you knew. That's always something that kind of fascinates me is, you know, the, the very beginning of, of the story. Yeah, I mean, 
I was just always highly involved in talent shows. I did uh, in elementary school. I don't know if uh, you guys had like a lip sync contest where you guys did almost like, a, you know, a routine to a song. I did Michael Jackson Thriller and I had all my friends dressed up like, you know, zombies and stuff and doing the dance behind me. And I made I made like cardboard coffins. I, I rented a fog machine like I saved up, you know, lunch money or whatever to rent a fog machine for my performance. And no other like fifth graders were had fog <laughs> machines and crazy props and stuff but I went all out and anything I did that had to do with uh, entertaining people or performing I was always going like 100% you don't into o- it you know you don't um, often get that kind of production value in a fifth grade uh, anything <laughs> that's that's pretty funny Exactly. I, I would come home every day and work on making uh, tombstones and stuff and props for this this performance. And it was like really all this just for this like fifth grade, you know, but to me, it was everything. It was so important. And, um, you know, I would do like I really started out as far as the rap thing goes. I started out doing spoken word. I was really into poetry. I started doing my poetry as like acapella performance uh, poetry, which is actually a really big thing in Philadelphia, which is a very artsy city. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I decided, you know what? I can put this to instrumentals. I can put this to beats. And the transition was pretty hard actually, because when you're doing spoken word and like slam poetry, you can take all these dramatic pauses and and you know inflections in your voice that you can't necessarily do when you're doing it on an instrumental it has to be a little more uh, you know obviously rhythmic so mm-hmm. um the transition was tough for me because i kind of wrote all these poems and then i went into the studio and i was like all right i'm just gonna like do my poems over the the beats and the, and, and they weren't fitting how i wanted them to fit and i was right. getting really frustrated like why isn't this working uh so then i realized hey you know maybe i should get the instrumental first and write while I'm listening to it, that's way more effective. Uh, so it kind of transitioned from there, but I was always, you know, really into performing. I was really into poetry and it kind of, um, transitioned into this rap thing, which is crazy. Cause I am from the suburbs. It's not like I grew up around people who were freestyling all the time. I didn't get to, you know, witness the whole, you know, urban lifestyle of it. So it's kind of like, you know, I rap from a completely different perspective of what people are used to in the, in that genre. Yeah, but, you know, hip-hop is just, you know, while it has its origins, um, it has very much become sort of a lens that that people now use to, you know, for self-expression. You know, if you, if you rewind, you know, a hundred years uh, to when you know, jazz first started in New Orleans, you know, it, it was predominantly, you know, it, it had a demographic kind of sensibility about it. Um, and it now is, is something that, you know, you have Afro Cuban jazz, you've got performers in South America that play in that style. You know, it's, you know, there's a huge market for jazz in Europe yet. It started in New Orleans and I don't, I don't, I think hip hop's very, much more similar uh, to jazz than people re- think it is. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not surprising that, you know, you you, you didn't come from, you know, South Central Los Angeles or, or you know, something like <laughs> right. that. Um, I mean, all the genres are starting to fuse anyway. You can do whatever you want. You can do country music if you're from the hood. You can do it. Doesn't it? Doesn't matter. It's it's whatever you feel. Creativity really has no rules. So that's the beauty of it. Do you now any thought or interest to revisiting spoken word performing or 
I know. I mean, I know that's a departure from what you're known for. Yeah, I've done it. I've done it not for my own projects, but I've still done spoken word for other people's projects and for charity albums and stuff like that. So it's it's something that I've continued uh, to do. But yeah, because of the fact I already have uh, my lane that I've kind of uh, started building up for the kind of music I do, it's not something I've uh, pushed to the forefront, but I still do uh, do it from time to time. Well, and, and you reach a certain kind of critical mass in one style, you know, right. where you've gained acceptance from, you know, and, and in your case where you're, you know, you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of fans. Mm-hmm. It becomes very tough to do something completely different. Not everybody can, you know, can, it's a, it's a rare performer that can pull that off and say, okay, I'm going to do, uh, you know, I'm going to do hard rock and then we're going to record a country album. You know, it's like, if you look back to, uh, that's what killed Garth Brooks career. You know, where he right. had, you know, he was on top of the world there for a bit. And then he had that alter, remember he had that alter ego record where he released it under another person's name and it was, it was really a rock record and people just flipped out. They didn't know what to do with it and it tanked <laughs> and that was that, you know, and he's, you know, he's, uh, it's an odd example to draw, but. Um, yeah, I mean, which is a shame because artists, a lot of times, people who are artistic are artistic in a lot of different ways, not just one way. But yeah, you become known for the one way and then people just want you to be that all the time. I mean, fortunately in my career, I've always kind of done a lot of different things. So no one could ever be like, hey, she's a sellout. She's doing this just to to get attention here now because I've I've done everything. I've been in films. I've, uh, you know, you're talking about spoken word. I did a spoken word PSA commercial that was aired all over the East Coast from like 2010 to like just recently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was like an anti-litter commercial and it. That was spoken word and had nothing to do with like, you know, how my music it comes off and then I don't know I've just done so many different things that I don't think people could really be surprised <laughs> for, for that for that commercial were you were you on camera or were you the voiceover oh I'm on camera you could look it up probably on YouTube still to this day if you put a uh, Whitney Payton anti-litter commercial uh, it was like a PSA spoken word that I did it was filmed in Philadelphia and it was about cleaning up Philadelphia and cleaning up the litter in Philly and it was uh, filmed in like 2009 or 2010 and it was aired on like major networks for like years like BET MTV mm-hmm. um, places like that but mostly in the area because it was about Philadelphia but uh but yeah, so people saw that and they took all my makeup off for that. Like any kind of, like I wore such plain clothes. They wanted me to look really, you know, not like a crazy performer. They wanted me to look like, you know, the average uh, kind of person. So right. I had like no pink in my hair. Everything was very natural. So it was, it looked nothing like the image that I push as, as, you know, myself. But I've done so many different things that it's, it's yeah, it's almost expected from my fans now. They uh, they're they're okay with it. Luckily, any now any interest in pursuing acting at all? I mean, in in terms of of you know, you do a lot of on camera stuff because video is such a strong part of your you know of your of your performing ability. You know, if you go anybody that you know just goes to YouTube and and plugs Whitney's name in in the search engine um, you know these videos have hundreds of thousands of views and yeah. you have to be able to uh, 
project what you're doing at a high level to be able to to get that kind of traffic. So, you know, is that a possibility for you later on to to go into TV or 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 acting well, or? When I started, when I was a teenager and I was starting to get into music, um, it became very hard to have any kind of nine to five job because obviously when you're pursuing anything in the entertainment industry, your schedule's really sporadic. So mm -hmm. I hit this point of limbo where it's like I didn't have enough money not to have a job, but I also didn't have enough time to just have a regular nine to five kind of job because I was also doing shows and all that stuff. And bosses don't like it when you're just like, hey, I'm just going to be in Cleveland this weekend. Bye. Right, uh, right. So I was actually making a living before I, I was now I live completely off of my music I have for years now, which, you know, I'm very fortunate. But um, before that, I was acting and I was an extra in a lot of movies to pay, uh, you know, my bills and stuff. I mm -hmm. was um, I was just like bit parts in movies. You would go and you're there for like 12 hours. And at the end, they're like, thanks, here's like 100 bucks. And you're like, yes, you know. <laughs> so you have to it's a lot of waiting around. It's a lot of shooting the same scene over and over and over. Uh, I've been in things like uh, National Treasure. I was in uh, cover with Vivica Fox. I played like a female inmate uh, that was in the same holding cell as her and stuff. So it's like I, I've done quite a few th acting things already. Just a lot of people don't know about it because I'm in the background somewhere and you've probably seen me and didn't even realize it. But that's how I, that's how I made my money. I'd get like a hundred dollars, probably even less sometimes for some of my gigs. And I was just doing that like several times a week. So, well, and it's, it's, when did you make the transition from having, and this is another, you know, this is another turning point in people's lives where, you know, I found we have performers that that can sustain themselves, and that by itself is is really a feat. I mean, it's not easy to do. I think less so now than than back in the '80s and '90s, where everyone, you know, because as you said, there was that air of mystery about you know being in the music business. You know, there was a misperception among the public that. You know, oh, well, people fly on private jets and they've got limos and they're rock stars and all of that. And they've got millions of dollars. Well, that's not rarely is the case. Um, and to be able to transition from the where you have to maintain, you know, a quote unquote day job uh, to pay pay rent or your mortgage or car or whatever to being to transitioning from that into being a completely self-sustaining artist, that's a leap that you know, quite a few people attempt, but, you know, very few get over that hump. Um, when, when was that time period for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say it was a couple of years ago when I started really touring full time. Uh, I would say being an artist, obviously most artists, we're not good at accounting. We're not good at math. Usually we're, we're good at like English courses and things like that. Uh, a lot of artists are just not good with numbers. It's not our thing, but, uh, you have to become really business savvy because I have this mentality where I think you can make money doing anything, anything that you want to do, as long as you figure out how, <laughs> you know? So right. I, I think no matter what profession you want to go in and people are like, Oh, there's no money in that. There's no, like, yes, there is. You just got to figure out how, 
how to do it. You know what I mean? So um, I think once I started becoming more business savvy and realizing, hey, I'm spending way more money, you know, right now than I'm making. I got to figure out how to change this. Uh, and and believe me, going into any kind of business, you do have to spend money at first. People don't realize, hey, you're spending way, way more money than you're making at first with any business. And not everyone wants to commit to that, but that's just the reality of it and with no guarantee that you're going to make it back. Uh, but luckily, something I can say with being independent and in the underground is there still is a demand for physical CDs and things like that. When I'm on tour, I sell a lot of physical albums. Um, I just really recently released my uh, pre-orders for my new record and they just demolished my pre-orders for my last record. Um, hundreds and hundreds of pre-orders so far in one week. Um, I and sold several thousand units of my last album. I would say close to 10,000 units of my last album with absolutely no magazine co coverage, absolutely no publicist, no management, no booking agent, um, you that's know, a, no that, big that, budget. Yeah, that so. that's phenomenal. Thank uh, you. you know, to, to, and, and, you know, trying to... Um, I don't want to say educate, but, but trying to describe, you know, to lift the hood so that people can see how this stuff really works, you know, for, you know, let's say you're in a small indie band and, you know, even to, to self-produce, uh, a full length recording and, you know, to have a thousand discs pressed where you're actually getting the physical units, you know, you may be three to five thousand dollars in. You know, by the time you even get the 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 units delivered to you from whoever your manufacturer is, um, so to sell for 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 most bands, you know, they get those thousand discs in, and half of them sit. You know, if they're lucky, they've sold half of them. And the other half are in somebody's trunk or, you know, in somebody's basement or something like that. <laughs> well, I think you have to be realistic. Yeah, yeah, I think you have to kind of order according to what you think you're going to do. Um, yeah, so you you don't want to over order. You might want to take it small increments at a time until you sell that and then recoup and then use that money to then buy more stuff. I mean, that's what I do with a lot of merchandise, with a lot of T-shirts and stuff. I use the money that I make from selling the merchandise to then restock merchandise. Uh, so you just got to be smart in that way, and that's how that's how you make the money. You just let whatever your initial investment is repay itself and then anything you're making on top of that you know you hopefully are, are profiting and just figure out how to make it work so um and that's another thing when you have less people involved then you don't owe as many people money you know what i mean you don't right. owe as many managers and different people money i'm not saying it's a bad thing because now i do have management now um now i do have booking and everything and they're doing wonders for me but people think that they need that stuff right out of the gate and if you're not built up yet giving someone a percentage of what you're making when your percentage when it's zero is just really not uh beneficial for you or them so you really have to build your buzz up before you need someone to help take you the next step uh, so that's, you know, that's another thing. Artists just think they need that stuff. And you do once you get to a certain point, once it's so like so much stuff is on your plate, you can't even handle it. But until it's at that point, why give someone a percentage when you can you can do it? Well, in that well, and you're you're a small business. I mean, you, yeah. you are. And, and I don't mean that in a in a in a bad way. I'm, I'm saying that, you know, for no, my true. in my, you know, my day job, my day job, quote unquote. Uh, where, you know, I'm advising small companies and startups and things, you know, the thing is not necessarily what you make in terms of 
finances. You know, it's not how many dollars you bring in. It's what you're putting out. And and overhead can kill you before you even get out of the first two quarters of your, you know, your first year. So um, keeping keeping your overhead low by keeping your organization very flat, as you have done, by, by doing a lot of stuff hands-on uh, yourself is – you know, really is one of the keys to success. I think that, uh, yeah. if more I mean, people... and I've learned it from making all the mistakes. Like don't mm-hmm. think no one should think that, Oh, I just came out knowing everything. That's, that's not what I'm telling you guys that I'm the best. And I knew everything. That's just not true at all. I've spent so much unnecessary money and went and looked back on it and gone, wow, that was just really wasteful yeah. <laughs> and I can't get it back. You know what I mean? So I, I have, thrown money away accidentally thinking I needed certain things or like really overdid it. And then when I could have really, you know, done it on a much smaller scale or done something uh, differently to save this money, like just on rentals for touring on different mm-hmm. things like that, where yep. I could have done it differently. Yeah. And, and financing, um, you know, financing live performances and especially if you're stringing together a tour, um, you know, the, there's a lot of pitfalls, I'll you know put it that way. That uh, you know, unless you until you do it a couple of times, and that sort of you know trial and error, and you learn what things worked and what things didn't work, and you know mm-hmm. what strengths you have that you can cultivate. Um, you know, it, it takes a while. So uh, it's oh, yeah. it's music business 101 today with uh, with Whitney. Payton, <laughs> I think is what we'll call this one. True, um, true, yeah. From making from making all the mistakes, I'm telling you guys what not to do. <laughs> there you go, and you know, and it's it, what this really illustrates is, you know, the thing that I've noticed in in representing performers from all fields is that, you know, being good at what you do, even if you're exceptionally good at what you do, whether it's spoken word, rap. Uh, you know, you're an instrumentalist, uh, you're a writer, whatever it is. Being exceptional isn't enough to make no. to make you have to be business savvy now too. Ex- exactly, you have to uh, you have to be good. You have to live and breathe what you do, and you have to be smart about it. And otherwise, you're gonna you run into trouble uh, eventually. Yeah, Whitney, thank you so much uh, for taking time to to spend with us today, and um, you know, best of luck. We'll all look forward to uh, uh, the new album coming out uh, January five. This will this will air right after uh, right after it comes out. So we'll we'll be uh, interested to hear the whole thing, and uh, hopefully we we talk again soon. All right, thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Whitney. Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or public speaking engagements, or if you have legal matters you want to discuss, contact him at tucklaw.com. That's T-U-K-Law.com. For future episodes, please subscribe to Creative Confidential on iTunes or visit us at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittman Social Media creation. 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 Steve Mittman Social Media.com.